Our reading today is from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. I'd like to say a few words of introduction about this scripture. As I mentioned to the children, this is a scripture about scripture. It's beautiful when scripture talks about itself. And in this case, Jesus reads scripture, but he also begins to interpret scripture or preach from scripture. And as we saw in our first reading, there's precedence for this throughout the Bible, and it was done so in Nehemiah 8 that uh, Brian read. And I like that he read all those names. He didn't butcher them. Those were good. I knew it's, it's kind of like um, Pentecost Sunday. You know, you're supposed to read the names of all those countries that people are from. You know, we're, we're like from Ephesus and, and also Cappadocia and all sorts of names. And I heard one story about how... Uh, a lay person was asked to read on, uh, on uh, Pentecost, that verse, and uh, he started reading the names of these foreign countries, which were all hard to pronounce, and he got through the first two or three, and then finally he said, and other places. Uh, so I'm glad that Brian didn't go, and other people, uh, because those are real people. The names are in there because they're, they're important. People were there with uh, with the reading of that scroll. And there's this sense that, um, what were they reading? They were reading the law, maybe Deuteronomy. And the people's reaction was, they hadn't heard this in a long time. God was speaking into the people of Israel with a fresh voice, even though it was his old word. His old word was coming to them with a fresh voice. And they were like, they listened to it for six hours, from daybreak till noon. They were listening to God's word being spoken. It was probably being read in Hebrew, the language it was written in, the language it was recorded in the scroll. Most of the people in the crowd probably spoke Aramaic. So they were relying on a few of the Levites, the people who knew this, to translate it in real time from uh, Hebrew into Aramaic. And so it says in your reading from Nehemiah 8 that while it was being read, other people were giving the sense of it in real time. They were interpreting the word for the people. And there was a response to the word. There was a response to the fresh voice of God's old word into that midst, which was grief, godly grief, because this was the law. And they realized, oh, I've been breaking some of these laws. And it might have been grief that we haven't had this at our fingertips all these years. It's such a great feeling that now we are in touch with God's word. And so there was grief at hearing God's word as they internalized it. But then those readings said, don't you don't have to stay in grief over this. We're going to commend you to celebrate and have joy because God is good and now you have his word. So the grief gets swallowed up in celebration. Um, and this not just in Nehemiah, but even in the time of, of Jesus, there was space made in the synagogue practice, not just for the reading of Scripture but for its interpretation as well, for, for someone to preach it. And it was very kind of interesting what would happen in a synagogue service at Jesus' time. They had kind of a set recipe for how they ran a synagogue service. Um, they would have certain prayers and blessings that they would say, uh, and um, there, there would be benedictions at the end, and they would read the psalms together. Sometimes they would sing the psalms, and the tunes to the psalms are lost to us. I think that's a great loss. But somewhere there's music to almost all the psalms. I wish we, I mean, we've made up our own, but I wish we had that, okay? Um, and there was somebody who, who kept the Torah, who kept the law, or it wasn't just the Torah. It was also something called the, uh, the Tanakh, which is the Torah and also the prophets 
and the writings. And this person was called the attendant sometimes. He made sure that the scrolls were scrolled up properly, well protected. People didn't touch the scroll that weren't supposed to touch the scroll um, because the scroll was holy. This was God's word, and they would wrap it in a covering. They would uncover it for when it was read. They would cover it up again as in its holiness. Um, modern day uh, in synagogue practice, and there's a wide variety about this, there's a person who has a little stick. It's called a yod. Yod is the Hebrew word for hand. And at the end of this little stick is a little silver hand with its index finger pointing out like this. It's called and it's the yod. And this attendant, when somebody's reading, will hold the yod up. And actually, since they read from this way over, he'd go like this as they're reading. And that would help the reader not lose their place and mess up God's word. You don't want to mess up God's word. And uh, make sure that they didn't make any mistakes and were always following along. But also because God's word is holy, you don't touch it with a human hand. You touch it with the yod. And so they would do that. And the, the word was holy to them. Not just the word, but the actual scroll that the word was written on. In some more modern um, Jewish synagogues, and this is a beautiful thing, I think, they, as part of the ceremony, they'll actually take the scrolls and hold them and the congregation will dance around the scroll and there'll be this joyful sense. Now, the Orthodox Jews would watch this and, and be in horror. And some, you've even heard stories about the Orthodox Jews trying to come into synagogues where this is happening and stop them from treating the Torah that way because they thought it should be more holy. But th these were the people that took the celebration that Nehemiah talks about to heart and they take God's word and they dance with it. They celebrate it. I don't think that was happening in... in uh, Jesus' time so much. I think they were all pretty orthodox then. They would not have danced around their scroll. Um, and we have uh, that, but something happens along the way sometimes. When you have this high regard for Scripture, one drift is that you start having high regard for the thing the Scripture is written on, and that becomes a substitute for actually Scripture itself. And so even some Christians do this. They'll say, never put a Bible on the ground. Never put a Bible on the chair next to you. It should always be up here next to your heart. Islam does this too. You have, there's a lot of rules in Islam about how you treat the Quran. You, you don't put it underneath other books, that kind of thing. But really, there's this, we want to have this sense that God's word is in many different forms. It's in many different translations. It could be in a scroll. It could be in a book. It could be on your phone. Right now, some of you are reading the Bible on your phone, and maybe you haven't touched a paper Bible in a long time. That's okay. That's still God's Word, whether it's made up of electrons or paper. It's still God's Word. Um, so, we're going to see in this that Jesus is going to um, have an interaction with his home synagogue, and he is going to read the scroll. And a, a, the attendant may be helping him out in the way I described. The other setting historically for this is that Jesus has just been tempted in the wilderness by Satan. He's, been, he's gone out to the wilderness. He's been a long time without food and water. Satan came to him and tried to tempt him. And it was with the word that Jesus was able to push back at Satan's temptations. And so the word is really operative here in Luke chapter 4. So with that introduction, let's go to our reading. Luke chapter 4, Jesus at Nazareth. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. 
He taught in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight from the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to take you on an imaginative journey. Go back in time to 27 AD to a little town called Nazareth in a little countryside called Galilee, which is just part of a little country called Palestine or Israel. Not a very important place. A lot of small things are going on there. And imagine that you are somebody, you are somebody who has seen a little boy named Jesus grow up in the neighborhood from when he was a little child. You know his mother and his father. You know his father's a carpenter or a stone worker of some sort. And that Jesus has been apprenticing and has been trained in that profession. And that he's totally fitting into his family's expectations that you would have of him. Not going outside the bounds of the family. That would be dis dishonorable to the family. But knowing his place as somebody who works with wood, works with stone, works with his hands. But then you've heard that recently Jesus has been out in other parts of the region. He's been finding disciples down by the Sea of Galilee. He's been in other places and he's been preaching with great wisdom and power and everybody who hears it is amazed by it. But then Jesus comes to his hometown. And not only that, he comes to the church he grew up in. Right? Some of you have grown up in this church. <laughs> now you're adults. What's that like? Jesus comes to the church that he grew up in. And for some reason, the people running the church service that day say, let's let Jesus read. We've heard a lot about him. All right, let's let the carpenter read. That's fine. And so Jesus stands up, as is the custom, to read. And he reads from the prophet Isaiah, from chapter our, verse, our chapter 58 and our chapter 61, he reads from Isaiah. And then Jesus sits down, which is a signal that now he's about to preach on what he just read. You stand to read, you sit to preach. Could somebody bring a chair? That wish it could be so much easier. No. We stand to preach. Sometimes we sit to read, but that's okay. It was a different custom then. And he sits to interpret the word, just like as we read about in, in Nehemiah. Somebody's going to read the word, and now somebody, the same person, is going to interpret the word for us. 
And they heard about release of captives. They know the story of Isaiah, who he's speaking to. He's talking to the people who were captive in Babylon. He's talking to them about a future day when all their oppressors will be taken care of. Sight will be given to the blind. All sorts of good things are happening. And they, you, are expecting from this young carpenter that this, he's just going to talk about the same hope that we all have. Someday in the future, all this good stuff is going to happen for us. But right now we can't see it. Right now we're still living in oppression. Right now we're still living in blindness. Right now we're still living in captivity. Someday this will all come to us. That's what you're expecting. But instead, what they get is Jesus sits down and begins to preach. He begins to interpret the word. And he says it like this. Today, this is how he began. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What does that mean? Is he saying, is he saying he's the anointed one? Is he saying he's the one who's going to bring freedom to the captives? And release to those who are oppressed and sight to the blind. Is he going to do that? Is he, is he going to bring about the year of God's favor? Can he do that? Wow. This is a very different claim. And he's saying not only he's doing it, but this future hope we have is actually unfolding now and in this moment and in this place. And it's starting here. Next week, we're going to see that while they were amazed at everything that Jesus said, their reaction quickly turned to one of anger. They became As Jesus went on and told them more, he tells them in particular that this good news is not just for them alone, but it's for everyone else in the world. When they hear that news, they get so angry, they'll they take Jesus by force. And they take him up to a high cliff in Nazareth. And in Nazareth, there's a lot of really tall hills. So it's not hard to find a high cliff around Nazareth at all. They're, they're everywhere. And they get ready to throw him off a cliff. And so this, his, his ministry could have ended on the same day it started, right? Um, but Jesus is light on his feet. And he somehow just, it says he walks out amongst their midst and walks on. It doesn't even say he runs away. He just walks away and they're unable to throw him off the cliff. It's... Yeah, Jesus, he's miraculous. I don't know how he does it. I wish I had that, you know, that just walk through your enemies and you're done. Uh, so that, that was the response. And they may even imagine your response. We saw him grow up. We saw him as a little child. I'm not sure we can understand him now as the Messiah. I'm not sure we can get there. It's hard to hear that from somebody you don't expect it from. But it's the way that God breathes a fresh voice into an old word. And he, and he does it here with Jesus. He uses an old word from Isaiah, but Jesus breathes new life into it with a fresh voice. And that's, there's all these moments in history where God's word breaks into the life of his people. And it's an old word, but it has a new voice. It happened in Nehemiah. It happened several other places. Uh, over and over again, we find that Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. He's fulfilling prophecy. If you read um, Romans and Galatians in particular, but not only those, but also First and Second Corinthians, you find that the Apostle Paul is very often quoting Scripture. 
to make his own case, uh, the case that the Spirit wants him to make, about new life in Christ. So God is always breathing his old word in a fresh voice, in new ways, into his community, and he continues to do it in this world. So we should look at this old word that Jesus brings as a new verse. And if you have your Bibles open, look at, look at what Jesus says. It's in Luke chapter 4, verse 18. And these are quoted from Isaiah 58, verse 6, one tiny section, but mostly from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, with a very important omission, which we'll get to. But let's start with the beginning. Uh, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. All well and good because he's reading from Isaiah, but later on when he says, the scripture is fulfilled in, my, in your presence, he is now speaking about himself as the one who has been anointed. The Hebrew word for anointed is mashal. The Hebrew word for the anointed one is mashiach, from which we get the word that we all are familiar with, messiah. Messiah means anointed one. It means to be in that line of people who are anointed with God's power to bring about God's work in the world. Many people are anointed in the Old Testament. Aaron is anointed. Moses is anointed. King David is anointed by the prophet Samuel uh, when he's made king. And David really is the image of, uh, a future David is really the image of the Messiah that people are looking for. Jesus says, I have been anointed. And to do what? To preach good news to the poor, people who have no power in that system there, people who have increasingly intense needs that nobody is looking after, and he's going to bring them good news. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, release to the captives. People who are in bondage are going to be brought out. You can imagine somebody who's been in prison for all their life, perhaps, and somehow the, the doors of the prison fling open and they're able to walk out again. We can think about this as a physical thing where somebody's actually physically in prison, but we can think about this as a spiritual thing too. We're in captivity. We're held prisoner by the power of sin in this world. Jesus comes as somebody who brings release to prisoners, to the captives, and lets them all go free. Recovery of sight to the blind. Again, this works on two levels. Definitely Jesus does go around the countryside and he heals actual blind people in ways that was not understood. Medically, nobody could help them. But as a result of Jesus' miraculous, miraculous ministry to them, they were able to see. Several times in the Bible, in the New Testament, this happens. But there's also spiritual blindness that we all suffer from. There's things that we cannot see because our vision is obstructed. It's obstructed by ourselves. It's obstructed by our idolatry. It's obstructed by our sin. We do not have the ability to see reality as it actually exists, as God created it, because we are blind. We are blind in some ways because of our fallenness. And Jesus is saying here, as the fulfillment of this prophecy, that he will peel back those layers, just like those scales fell off the eyes of the Apostle Paul when he was converted. He will peel back those layers so that we can see him and ourselves and everyone else in this world as he sees them, in the reality as it actually exists, as God created it. Not a false reality that has been created by us and for us for our own eyes. Jesus is the one that brings recovery of sight for the blind. And he releases the oppressed, very similar 
to freedom for the prisoners, but there's a different angle on this too. The sense that there is active oppression of people in this world by the evil one, by somebody who's trying to keep them down, by somebody who's trying to keep them bound up in the chains of sin and brokenness. And then he says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This could have meant the, the sabbatical year, the Sabbath year, which would have been the 50th year, sometimes known as the year of Jubilee. Some people could have read it like this and saying, ah, Jesus is inaugurating a new cycle of life for us, and this is the time when we, when we rest this year and we cancel all old debts. But really what's happening here is Jesus is saying, God is changing the season of this world right now. And it's changing from the old way of doing things, and the new voice and the new person is coming in, Jesus Christ, and God's kingdom is being inaugurated in the world, in this place, in this moment. And it's a kingdom that overlaps the world's kingdom. It's not a kingdom that replaces it or conquers it by brute force. It's something that overlaps it. And the kingdom exists where God's work is active and his word is preached and people come to faith in him. That's God's kingdom. And it, it overlaps the kingdom of the world. I'm in, Jesus says, I am inaugurating a new king, kingdom and a new, really a new world order from this place on. The people who were familiar with Isaiah 61 would have kept on listening because they were waiting for the next part of verse 2 of chapter 61. And if you have it in your Bible, it says, and vengeance for our enemies. Vengeance against those who are against God. Jesus doesn't say that. This is that glaring omission I referred to. Jesus reads all about the Lord is on me, he's anointed me, helped me with the, to help the poor, the prisoners, the blind, the oppressed. God's kingdom is starting here, but he leaves out the vengeance part. Not, not that he doesn't believe it, and not that it's not God's word. It is absolutely God's word in Isaiah 61. There is vengeance. But it wasn't vengeance the way people listening then would have understood it. They were hoping for vengeance that looked something like military conquest or military pushback against their oppressors. They were tending to read all of this in a very physical way, and they were hoping that God would come with a fiery sword or some army of angels and sweep through the land and, and just clean it out and give them everything that they wanted. And Jesus held back on that. That's not what the coming kingdom looks like. I'm not inaugurating a new kingdom of military power and force that's going to wipe out everybody that you don't like. I'm not here to I'm not here to destroy your enemies. Next week we'll see what he's going to tell them is, the people you think are enemies, the Gentiles, this is for them just as much as it is for you. And he gives examples from the history of Israel where there were all sorts of people in need in Israel, yet the prophets of God came and helped people who were not Israelites. Elijah comes and helps a woman from Zarephath. She's not a Jew. She's a Gentile. He helps her first in the, in the famine. And then there's a story of Elisha and, the, and um, Naaman the Syrian, who's a Gentile. And all the people who were healed in that season in the life of Israel, a Gentile was healed of his leprosy. And that's why they want to throw him off the cliff. They don't like hearing this. They don't like, they want to hear the vengeance part. Take, finish Isaiah 61 too, Jesus. 
take vengeance on our enemies. If you're really the Messiah, you want to do this. And he's saying, no, I'm not here to take vengeance on your enemies. I'm here to bless your enemies. God will bring vengeance on the person whom Jesus has just most recently had an encounter with. God will bring vengeance on Satan. God will bring vengeance on our brokenness. God will bring vengeance on the ruler of this world. But it's not going to look like what you think it's going to look like. Wow. So you can imagine how this fresh voice in God's old word totally turned the church service upside down. I mean, everybody remembered that day. Remember that time Jesus came and preached in his own home church? Yeah, you mean when we tried to throw him off the cliff and he ran away? Yeah, that day. That was really weird. That was a strange day. And he spoke about the scriptures and he said he was the one who was fulfilling them all and he was starting something new in a new way. That was amazing. You know, nothing's like that, like that has happened here in a long time. So that was a pretty important day. Yeah. When Jesus comes, things happen, and God's word comes and does things. And there's always a response to God's word. In Nehemiah, there's this godly grief at God's word. There's grief, oh, we've broken this law. It's been so long since we've heard it. But then, there, of course, the, the other response was joy, because they were told, yes, have joy. But we respond to God's word. If, if we're paying attention at all, God's word is so provocative, it's going to get a reaction out of us. It's going to get a rise out of us. If we have no reaction at all to God's word, either we're not listening or we have no connection to God. But we have, the people listening had this hostile response to Jesus because it wasn't for them alone. We have to share God's overabundance of grace with everybody else. It doesn't punish our enemies. It doesn't look like we expect it to look like. And it's coming from somebody that we don't expect it could come from. It's coming from that little boy, the carpenter. Who does he think he is? Sometimes we respond to God's word with grief because we're cut about our own sinfulness. That's godly grief. That's good grief. Sometimes we're cut by God's word because it describes the brokenness of this world. And if you've been in touch with the brokenness of this world, or you know somebody who's really been in touch with the brokenness of this world, and you know about the abuse that takes place in this world, if you know about the pain that this world causes, if you know about the sin that can have this effect on us, you could spend all day crying about that. You could spend all week crying about that. And you should be. We should be in touch with the grief of this world. God's word can open our eyes to that. It can peel back the layers and cure us of our blindness so that we see the world as it is and grieve over it and say this is a broken and terrible place. It's a veil of tears. There's great things about it too, don't get me wrong. But when we're really in touch, when we see as God sees, we see the lovable things in this world, the beautiful things in this world, but we're not blind to the brokenness of this world and the broken people in this world, even the people we think of as our enemies. We respond to God's word with hostility or grief, but God's word to us also should result in celebration. That's what they said in Nehemiah. Yeah, we know that you've broken this law, but you, now you have it. So now you can rejoice. Now you can celebrate. You can dance around the Torah now. You can hold it in your arms and spin around in ecstasy because you have God's word.
So our, our commended response from God when we hear his word, when we hear even a fresh voice in an old word, is joy because it's good news for us. Joy because it's redemption and release for us in our brokenness. And joy because God wants to use his word to accomplish his, word, his will in the world through us. When we hear God's word, it activates in us and we become agents of his work in the world to change the world. And the joy is we get to witness that firsthand. That's actually far more exciting than any extreme sports thing that you could do or any, anything that you could dream up that would be interesting. The most interesting and exciting thing you could see in all of life is to be present firsthand at God transforming the world by his word through you. That's exciting. And that's a cause for joy and excitement. This morning, God is calling us to hear his word with a fresh voice. Hear his word again. Maybe it's a word that you've heard many times and it just didn't quite hit you. But now you're open to it. Now you're ready to hear that word in a fresh and new way and it will do something in you. And I think he wants us to do that individually. When Krista and I were home in uh, my, what I call home, Tucson, Arizona, visiting my mother, we visited another covenant church in the area. And at that church, they had this wonderful tradition. The pastor who founded the church and has now moved on, but the pastor who's taken over for him now has kept this up, is the pastor, this sounds a little funny, but the pastor chooses a Bible verse for each member of the church and asks them to live with it for a year. And it's not a lottery like, you know, I'll, I'll assign them at random. He thinks about it. He's got all these scripture verses that he wants people to incorporate into their life. And he finds just the right one for just the right person. It's beautiful. And there's a church of over 200 people, so I don't know how they have the time to do that. It's great. And he says, live with this verse for a year. Let it be your verse for this year. Memorize it. Meditate on it. See, see your life and the world through the prism that this verse provides you. Uh, and while we were there, somebody got up and gave a testimony about her verse for the year. And it was really something. I mean, she said, this was a tough year. I had a lot of people in my family died, and, and this verse was really helpful to me in that time. And when I first got this verse, I didn't really want this verse. It wasn't what the cool kids had, you know. But she said, as, as I went on in the year, I, it became part of me. It became, became my verse. And it's been my... And so... And I, I was touched. I was touched by that. I was inspired by that. And um, I've, been in, I've been encouraged by other people, uh, my spiritual director, for example, to find a verse in the Bible that really describes the season of life I'm in at, an, at any given season. And I've done that. I've done that. Uh, I've found it a useful tool. And I'm not saying that just one verse of the Bible can speak the whole Bible to you, because it, it can't, unless it's John 3.16. Of course, we know that. Um, but I want to give us some homework, and, and, um, which is between now and next week, see if there's a verse. Look at your life story. Look at the scope of your life. And is there a verse that is your verse for this season of life that you're in? And next Sunday, not during the sermon, but during the, the sharing time, I'm going to ask anyone to stand up and say, this is my verse, and this is why it's my verse. And um, Let's try it. Let's try something with the Bible. 
Let's try something. Let's ask for this fresh voice to breathe into our lives. I'll do the same. I'll tell you what mine is next week. And if you want help, talk to me and I'll, I uh, will get the versomatic out. And no, I, I will think of, you know, I'll think about it. We'll find a verse that, that might be a good fit for you. And ask us to live in a journey with each other of engagement with God's word in that way. Um, the Bible has this ability to speak a fresh voice into us, sometimes when we least expect it. I think maybe I've told you this before, but when I was in seminary, when I was studying to be a pastor, and I was doing my daily devotions, and it was, I guess it was just a routine daily devotions. I wasn't expecting anything big to happen that day. All I was doing was reading the Bible. And I read the story about Abraham and how God commanded him to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice. It's a terrible story. It's a beautiful story. It's a haunting story. It's an amazing story. Oh. And, and I didn't even have a son at that time. Now that I have a son, it really hits me even harder. And I read about how Abraham took this one thing that he had hoped for for so long that God had promised him and then finally delivered. And then God said, take that thing that I gave you and now give it back to me. Give it to me. And Abraham responded in faith. And he took his son. And we know the good news is at the very last minute, God spared Isaac. And he never really wanted Isaac to die, but he wanted Abraham to know just how faithful Abraham was. And it struck me, even then in my dormitory room as a seminary student, there were some things in my life that I had not given to God. There were parts that I was holding back. God's old word spoke with a fresh voice to me on that day, and I got onto my knees. I put my elbows on the bed of my dormitory, and I prayed to God, God, I want to give you everything. Now, that's a conversation I should have had with God before I started seminary, right? But better late than never, okay? God, I want to give you everything. And his word was the trigger. His word, just in the privacy of my own room, reading it, in my own room was the trigger that spoke a fresh voice into my life and said, this is what you need to do. And I gave, I said, from now on, I want to give you everything. I'm not telling you that I've succeeded at that in the years since. That's not what I'm saying. But God's voice was a trigger. God's word was a trigger in that time. And I think not just individuals, but God also wants to speak a fresh voice into his church using his word. God speaks to the church as well. And I've had this sense for a few months now that at least if the, our church were to have a verse or set of verses, the season that we're in now maybe is the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. I've said some things about this in some meetings and you've heard me talk about it. And I'll probably preach on Matthew 25 sometime in the near future. I'm not going to go into it now, but it just seems like that's an important scriptural concept for us in this season of our life together. I also think that in future seasons of our life together, other voices from the scripture, other fresh voices are going to blow in and guide us and lead us and give us a prism through which we look at our work and our life together. But I think God can speak to a church using this, this word and this voice. Now, last week, 
I asked you if you'd come forward because you wanted to experience the overabundance of God's grace. And this week, and I forgot to mention this to the deacons, but I know they're here in the, in the crowd and they have nothing better to do at the end of the service than actually talk to you. And I mean that. They have nothing better to do than to talk to you. Would you come up at the end of the service? If you still want that blessing of God's overabundance of grace, come up here. If, if the word has been speaking to you and you have grief, come up here and share that grief. But also I want to make this an invitation. Come up at the end of the service if it's time for you to convert grief into joy and into celebration. And you want to celebrate the goodness of God's word and his fresh voice to blow into your life. So I'll make the invitation again at the end, but I want to have that in your mind as we go forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for him entering this world and for him coming even to his home church and speaking a fresh voice into it. Father, use your word, whether we hear it from each other, whether we hear it from our children, whether we read it alone in privacy, whether we hear it proclaimed here in this church or anywhere else. Use your word to break into our lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.